Welcome to the Women Count Podcast, a show dedicated to inspiring women in the data and digital profession. Our mission is to showcase the incredible skills and expertise of female leaders and data scientists who are making a difference in their field. Our podcast was created with the belief that every story shared has the power to connect, inspire, educate, and uplift others. Throughout this series, we're thrilled to feature exceptional women in the data and digital industry who have shattered glass ceilings and overcome obstacles to achieve their success. Join us as we delve deep into their journeys of triumphs and challenges, exploring both leadership and technical perspectives. I'm Charmaine McGowan. I'll be your host for the technical stream of the Women Count podcast. Get ready to be inspired, educated, and empowered. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Carol Wapshire. She is an experienced IT professional and a published author of a memoir titled IT Girl. In this episode, we will discuss Carol's journey in the IT industry, her experience as a woman in a male-dominated field, and how she navigated and overcome the challenges she faced. We also talk about her memoir, which tells her personal story within the larger context of women in IT and the barriers faced. Carol's insights and experiences will be invaluable to anyone interested in pursuing a career in this field. So without further ado, let's welcome Carol to the show. Hello, Carol. How are you going? I'm pretty good. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, the Women Count podcast, because you do count. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell our audience who you are? where you're from, and a little bit about what you do in terms of your career. Sure. Okay, so my name is Carol Wapshire, and I live in Canberra, Australia. And I've been in IT a very, very long time, sort of started in the early 90s. But these days, I am a specialist in a particular area of IT called identity and access management. What does that mean? So it's, it's building automation solutions for IT, And they are data-driven automation where the data is information about your users. So personal information. Well, normally it's in more of a work or student sort of capacity. So it's, it's like tapping into the HR system, finding out who the employees are, what job they're doing, who they report to, so that you can use that information to trigger user account and access changes. So yeah, you can identify them basically. Yeah, identify them and then figure out what they should be allowed to access. So how did you even get into this, into the scope of the dot-com era to now? So I sort of, I was was very much a, a systems person. I started out as an IT systems administrator way back in the early 90s. And so for many years, I just worked either in system administration or I worked as a technical resource on IT projects, doing things with servers, building server networks. And it was in the early 2000s, I was working in London for the London Business Business School, and we were doing a big email migration. And that's what got me into identity automation oh because the mail system migration was very complex and very fiddly and we were migrating from a unix iplanet ldap 
base system into Microsoft Exchange, completely different directory. So the the source accounts are in LDAP, the target accounts are in Active Directory. And there were just lots of fiddly changes that had to be made around mail routing and it all had to sort of happen in line with the mailbox migration. Now, if we'd been doing the whole lot in one go, it might not have been such a big deal, but we weren't. We were stretching it over about six months. And so London Business Business School, it's it's a university, but it's an interesting one because the students have paid an awful lot of money to be there. Don't we all? (laughs) Well, yeah, even more though. It's all MBA programs and postgraduate executive education. And so it, it also runs all year. They have programs running throughout the year, even over Christmas. So that there's no real proper down period where you can just say, right, email's not going to work for the next three weeks. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so it had to be done in dribs and drabs over many months, along with training users to use Outlook, which they've never had to use before, all sorts of other stuff. So I I figured out we needed some kind of automation that could handle all these fiddly changes. After some research, that actually took me to this Microsoft product, which at the time was called... Um, Microsoft Identity Integration Server. It okay. doesn't really roll off the tongue. And yeah, and, it, and I just figured out that I could actually set it up to detect when a change had been made on the source account that signaled the start of the mailbox migration and do all the other changes that were needed. Yeah, And it just took a whole swathe of error-prone, fiddly, annoying stuff out of the job. So it was really problem solving like, I was prob- I was problem solving but while I was doing that I started to think oh this is fun it's, it's this whole Meccano set I can just play with and make it do things that's right Meccano <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah so I went to my boss and said look we should be doing this the student accounts were being sort of partially scripted but partially manually created and there's a lot of student account you say um, manual to me and I, I cry. I know. Well, there's this, so this one young woman whose job it was to basically sit there till midnight the night before new courses were starting, extracting data out of the student database and then running it through all these scripts and running into all these problems to get the accounts created that the students would need. And it's just, the data's there. We should be able to automate all of this. Oh, 100%. I mean, you think of it now, absolutely. But back in the day, it would have been such a novel thing to do. Uh, I don't know. You see, this is the problem. Back in the day, there's still people doing this. Or copy-pasting. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> copy-paste, create by hand. Yeah, you're right. This, this technology's been around quite a while now. So the product at them was MIIS 2003. I was doing this in sort of 2004, 2005. Yeah. I'm still talking to customers who are not nearly as far along as I got London Business School back then. Wow. Which is disturbing. Okay. Just a note for everybody. If you don't automate your solutions, please go see Carol. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds to me you were, you were one of the kind of pioneers with all this. Yeah. I, it's funny because I've never seen myself as being a pioneer but then I sort of look back and see that quite often I was doing things Mm -hmm. reasonably early in the game but I always saw myself I've always seen myself as an implementer so other people are coming up with the the new ideas the new products whatever but I'm the one who's actually then going and making it work yeah which I actually think is something women do 
and have always been doing? Yeah, I guess women are considered as individuals who are skilled at putting ideas together and plans into action, often in a practical and tangible way. I guess historically, they've been regarded as strong implementers because of their ability to multitask, organise and prioritise. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's what really attracted me to IT. Well, I I won't say attracted me to IT because I sort of found myself in IT Mm. through a series of other events and... You were were destined to be in IT. Let's talk about your birthday. destiny. (laughs) (laughs) So, Carol, what what day were you born? Okay, so one thing I always say to people who are older than me by at least a few years is, I bet you can remember the day I was born. And they always can. It was the 20th of July, 1969. And it was the day that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the surface of the moon. And that's the date of my birth. Holy moly. <laughs> what a crazy... And I've always been very proud of this. Day. Complete and utter coincidence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I was born on that day, I would think it's got to mean something. The The fact that you were born on the day of the moon landing has got to start you off in the stead of technology, yeah. surely. So look, I don't. in some ways I don't think that the... I mean, I don't believe in astrology and that sort of thing, but... In writing this memoir, it, it did make me sort of reflect that every year, every year, there is something on the 20th of July. And obviously, the, the, the big, the 10-year anniversaries, you would expect it. But every single year, there'll be something on your news website you're looking at saying, on this day in 1969. And it's is it like I've unconscious had these, bias, though? Because that, Maybe, but it's, there's been these annual reminders mm. all my life of one of the greatest technological achievements of humankind. And I, was, and I say humankind quite deliberately. He might have been taking one giant leap for mankind, but it was only in researching this book that I found out that the person who designed the software that safely landed the eagle was a woman by the name of Margaret Hamilton. Love it. Please go on. (laughs) Yeah, and and then in looking into this, I I then started reading about the great history of women in computing and the very first computers that were built at Harvard and Princeton during the Second World War that were entirely programmed by women who had to invent programming. The machines might have been designed by men, but the men then said, oh, someone else has got to figure out how to make these things actually do something. And that was women. It was Grace Hopper and the Enac 6. What a symbiotic relationship, though, that the men are the one constructing it, but the women have the ideas how this should be put together. Yeah, that, they were the ones that... that were actually, without those women, those they would have just been very, very expensive collections of valves and light bulbs. And Grace Hopper invented a ticker tape method for programming the Harvard Mark I and the Princeton ENAC that was programmed by the women known as the ENAC 6 had to be completely reconfigured for every calculation which involved there was something like 3,000 bulbs that had to be oh my goodness rewired and there was actually a, an event where they had this big event where they got the press in to show this machine to calculate torpedo trajectories, missile trajectories. And so they did this this display for the press. So it took the women three weeks 
to configure the machine to do one calculation. The press just turned up, watched it doing the calculation, took some photos, cut the women out of the photos. The women were not even invited to the celebratory dinner. And then all the press was about this magical machine that can do this calculation in 15 minutes. Wow. And nothing about the women who diligently rewired it for three weeks to make it do that. What a missed opportunity for women back then. We would have had so many more women in technology now had that been a focus in the media. Well, so this is the thing. I've been trying to understand this. So all my career, people have said to me, I've always worked in hands-on technical roles and I've always been very much in a minority doing that while female at the same time. Yeah. And um, (laughs) because, you know, you have to have special capabilities being female. (laughs) And people have asked me, why are there so few women in IT? Mm. And most of the time I've just been like, what are you asking me for? I'm the one who's here. Yeah. (laughs) Go go ask the ones who aren't here. That's right. Yeah. You're already there. So you're like, where are the rest of the women? I was like, I don't know. In writing this memoir, I've now actually gone and read the research And one of the really interesting things I found was really relates to the birth of the computer nerd stereotype. And so the the very, very early computers were programmed by women. The early industry, there were many women who worked as programmers. In the 1960s, it was not uncommon to find women who worked as programmers. Which proves that we're certainly capable. Oh, we're absolutely capable. But at the time... In the 1960s, there was a massive shortfall of programmers. So the mainframe industry was ramping up. Organizations could buy a custom-built IBM mainframe for upwards of $2 million, and it needed a special climate-controlled room to house it in, and it needed staff who knew how to program it because those computers didn't even come with an operating system. They had to be programmed from the metal up basically and you had to know what you were doing the universities weren't offering courses yet quite often the programming techniques differed from vendor to vendor and even model to model so to find those people to actually make your incredibly enormous investment pay off was becoming such a problem that nato in 1968 convened a special summit to discuss the software crisis Wow. So it was well known at the time mm. that, that there was this real shortfall in programmers. So look, they would just take anyone who could possibly do the job. And plenty of those people were women. There were women working as programmers. And there's a great quote I found, which I've used in the, in the book, from a 1967 US Cosmopolitan. Oh, wow. An article called The Computer Girls. in which they they rave about this fabulous new career for women. And it says there's this quote that's, oh, once upon a time we could just be teachers and nurses, maybe a librarian, but now there's this fantastic new job for women. So this, this came out of this notion that had been around for a while at that time that programming was women's work. And, and did it spike the number of women? So there were women going into computing. Definitely the numbers throughout the 70s of women mm. enrolling in computer science degrees went up and up. So it was popular. But it was popular, but at the same time, the tide was already turning. And the, the shortage of programmers is actually a big reason why that happened. So there were no university degrees in the 60s. It was very hard to get training from the vendors. So desperate employers looked to aptitude testing. 
And the first thing they tested for was mathematical ability. There was just this kind of assumption Mm -hmm. that programming required maths. Yep. And so the earliest aptitude tests really looked for people with a higher degree in mathematics. And at the time, that was overwhelmingly men. Now, over time, they increased the scope of these aptitude tests to include personality profiling. Mm -hmm. Who did they profile to get the template for a programmer type? Yep. They profiled existing programmers, i.e. all those maths grads. Yeah. And, and so this just... Their algorithm was already set. Exactly. So it, it, was, it was fascinating to me that the, the, this, the actual computer nerd stereotype came out of this, this sort of loop of the aptitude testing of the 1960s. That's where we went wrong. Yeah. We were already going wrong back then. Mm. There was another whole factor as well, which was that programming started to attract more pay and status. So obviously when something's a woman's job, it's not paid as well. But Mm. once there's a massive shortage and everyone wants it, the pay goes up. Yeah. And definitely the the industry was becoming more and more masculinized throughout the 70s. But there's this sort of well-known point in the mid 80s where enrollment female enrollment in computer science suddenly tanked and so 1984 it seems to be the sort of high point where you had in America anyway you had around 35 percent female graduates from computer science and then the numbers just went down wow they were marketed mostly towards boys and men creating this artificial kind of male-dominated field, obviously discouraging women from pursuing computer science degrees. So I did my degree from 1987 to 1990. And I've often thought that I got in at a time... I, I, I had no notion going into computer science that it was a boy thing. No. It was just a, it was just a subject. I went into computer science pretty blind. Okay. And, and this is another thing. I think I went into it reasonably naively, which is actually a good thing. I didn't, girls who were 10 years younger than me, grew up seeing all the boys in the computer club at school. Yeah. You know, they saw who was using the computers. I didn't see that. So I didn't have those preconceived notions. And when I went to university, our first year computer science classes were about 30% girls. It changes university to university, but there's this fantastic paper that was written. It came out of Carnegie Mellon University in the US who actually commissioned a study to find out why the numbers of girls enrolling and staying in computer science had dropped so dramatically. In 1995, 8% of their graduating class were, were female. In computer science, 8%. This is what they're finding is that people, they're getting the enrollments, but they're not finishing. Yeah. So that's a fantastic study. It's called Unlocking the Clubhouse. Mm. And it's all about the factors going right back to kindergarten. Is it the social inclusion? Because if you feel excluded, you've got, say you've got a workforce of 70% male and 30% female. If there's no social inclusion of the females, they're not likely to stick around. It's look, it's all sorts. They, they cover all sorts of factors. The biggest one, though, to me was was just this constant, subtle or sometimes overt association of computers with a certain type of boys who 
got the obsessive mindset and really take to computers, ducks to water and just live and breathe computers. So the factors that make a person think that's the only way to work with computers or to be involved with computers. You have to be that obsessive. Yeah, there's no time for family. There's, there's no time for anything else. There's no time else. for anything else. You, you just have to You're be... dedicated yeah, if to... you are not... And there's still that there. 100% today. dedicated, then, then there's no point even trying. Yes. And that's the big problem. I have no problems with the people who want to live that hacker lifestyle, that computer nerd mentality, whatever, fine, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. But the danger is the the linkage of that with you're not even allowed in the door unless you're... So it goes back to that you can't be what you can't see, that notion. Well, in, in a way, I was what I couldn't see. I had no, you, I had no role models. You were the rarity. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I feel that I got in at a time when... Yeah, okay, so the, the first IT job I had, University of Technology in Sydney, I was in the electrical engineering department and I was hired to look after the PC network, the staff PC network. And this was at a time when, when I first started, the, the staff PC network didn't even exist. We had to build it. This is what I'm talking about. You really were a pioneer. Yeah. So <laughs> for those listeners out there, I don't know if, but Carol has this memoir about her life in technology and it is it is a read. You really do have to go and, and purchase the book. Well, the story that you tell about your time in the university and how you set up all those networks mm. to get pretty much the university up and running digitally yeah. is is a pioneering story. It really is. And I want to know a little bit more about Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Who's Jeff? Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. Because at the time, our usernames were first name, first initial of surname, and he, the first initial of his surname was an I, so he was actually Jeffy. Jeffy. <laughs> Love it. Je- I, yeah, Jeff was very much my, my first sort of mentor. I, he taught me he taught me everything, but he taught me also about the, I felt, the, the ethos of system administration, how to really put the work into so that you build the best possible services for your user within your budget you minimize downtime you we would work through the night through the weekend over christmas if we had to because it was a point of pride to keep the services running to the best of our ability and we were working within tiny budgets and he didn't care if you were a woman or not he just wanted to get no he didn't care at all and so i was originally employed to actually be a half-time research assistant half-time pc support because of one of those just weird budget things yeah and within a year, I did one research assistant project. Yeah. And then it was, okay, I'm, I'm flat out on this you found your PC tea. network thing. I don't know. I love that you went back to the head, the head guy and I you did. said, look, this is not what I'm doing. You need to rebrand my position. Yep. And I, I, in that, I also need a raise. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I didn't it. even ask for the raise. That was, again, it was just luck. I, I went to the head of school and said, listen, I'm... I'm not a research assistant. I'm 100% running around networking computers. I'm building servers. I'm installing printers. I'm fixing computers. I'm with my screwdriver, replacing hard drives and all this sort of thing. That's yeah. what I'm actually doing. Yeah. And he said, rewrite your job description. We'll send it to HR. So we did that. And when it came back, it had the job title IT system administrator on it and an $11,000 pay rise. How empowering is that? And this was in 1991. Wow. And I was on about 24000 
That, and then that I was got, huge. It was humongous. <laughs> it really opened my eyes. And actually, the thing is, at the time, I had actually thought a career in computing was not for me. Why? Okay, I'm going to have to backtrack here. That's all right. We can jump around <laughs> as much as you like. So I did, first year uni, I did computer science, maths, physics and chemistry. Yep. At the end of the year, I, I wanted to get a summer job. And I had some notion, I don't know where I got it from, that it would be fun to work in a mine. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. And so I Please sent, do tell. <laughs> I don't know where the idea came from, but I looked up and it was there wasn't even the internet then. So I'm literally looking up in the yellow pages yeah. or something. I don't know. And I found all the kind of mineral and mining companies yeah. and I just sent them all unsolicited CVs. You were a girl after your diamonds. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what it was about. Anyway, I got, I was probably lucky because the re- I did get a reply. So I was very lucky. And it was also from an organization that was in Sydney where I lived at the time. It was easy to get to. So it was Malco Aluminium. And they used to have a big plant in the western suburbs of Sydney where they would make various aluminium products. And a big part of that was recycling aluminium. Mm. So I got phoned up by HR and I got offered a summer contract job. And I was like, what's the job? And the woman was, I don't know, but I have been assured that a first year computer science student will have no trouble. Oh. So I turn up on the first day. I'm taken to the remelt section. which That was, would have been pretty cool. <laughs> oh, wow. It was amazing. It was this huge factory with these gigantic crucibles, three story high crucibles full of melted metal. Yeah. And that's where they, they melted down all the aluminium and made the various alloys and that sort of thing. The area that I was in was actually called remelt. So okay. that was the, the point of it was the melt. Mm, yeah. And so and I was working in the site office, which was inside the factory, and you could actually see the crucibles from from the window. Wow. And my job was it was to do with the analysis of the content of the melt. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's recycled aluminium, all sorts of other rubbish is in there. All mm-hmm. sorts of contaminants yep. and other metals. And depending on the grade of alloy they're producing, all those things have to be within certain parameters. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if particular contaminants are too high, they have to die. They can't take them out. They have to dilute them by chucking in pure metals. Yeah. But you don't want to do too much of that because you're trying to achieve the right balance. Yeah. And so they had, I don't know exactly how they did it, but they had, they, they would anal- analyze the contents of the melt and the figures went through a mainframe computer and the manager of the section had managed to get an, a cable run through to the site office. So it just came out of a plug in the wall and then they'd wired it into a, a PC. Yep. So it was just oh. this stream of numbers that was just coming through this wire. And then they didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And it, it wasn't exactly legible. So my job was to, to using Lotus 123. I'm going to say Lotus 123. Yeah, which is a predecessor of Excel of the melt. <laughs> in, in Lotus <laughs> yeah. 123. Exactly. But the, the guys loved it. The foreman would come clomping mm. in in his big boots and he'd have a look on the screen. And straight away, he could just see a color-coded graph. And I'm sitting there going. So you were doing dashboards before dashboards even existed. I know. So the, yeah. So this this was not, this was the summer 1987 to 88. Mm. So over that Christmas period, and I was I loved it. It was such a great job because it was so 
immediately practical. I could see the immediate benefit of what I did. And you had your results straight away. Straight away. Yeah. And I came back to uni, second year uni, going, that's it. I love, I'm going to make myself a career in computing. That's it. So I did second year computing, third year computer science. And then I'd finished my degree. I got a job as a programmer. Yeah. One of the worst jobs of my life. Oh, no. It was so bad that I thought I was wrong. A career in computing is not for me after all. And I went back to university and I did another year of honours maths as a way to get away from computers. What was it that triggered the, so this it is was, not for me? It was this, this company that wrote some kind of warehouse management package. I never saw it run. So they had these lovely offices in North Sydney, nice and bright, airy, big windows looking out towards the harbour. But the programmers were in a dark, cramped back room with a window overlooking a narrow back lane, no natural light. And so we're all squashed in there. Mm. And then they had this task logging system. And so you had to constantly be working on a numbered task if you got up to go to the loo you had to go task off type that at your terminal if you got up to make a coffee and you had to have 40 hours of task on time a week wow big brother big time it was awful and then they had this system where they said oh to make it up for you not getting any paid breaks we buy you lunch every day so at midday everyone would type task off into their terminal and troop downstairs there was a cafe on the ground floor Mm. we'd just be given whatever the food was of the day the food was fine but you got no choice it was just here's some food prison Exactly. Literally, quite often, lunch was over in 10 minutes and we all trooped back upstairs and it's, it's only 12.15. Oh, no wonder. And I was just going, I was going stir crazy. And I started actually saying no thanks to the, in inverted commas, free lunch mm. because I was they're trying to turn me into a robot yeah. whose job it is to, to, to convert English into C and doesn't even get to choose what she eats for lunch. I think that's the stereotypical thing that people project is that that's what you are you're a data entry person yeah it was horrible i had no creative input at whatsoever i didn't even know what the product did i would get these tasks which would just be go to function 753 and add an additional parameter named blah of type string it was it was so trivial i didn't know what the function did i didn't know how it fit in it was awful i lasted two months but i was I was like, I'm not putting up with this rubbish. Love and so it. I went, I went, when I resigned, they were a bit shocked. They said, you're supposed to give us three months notice. And I said, no, I'm still within my evaluation period. And the contract said, either party can terminate with no warning. So here's your no warning. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and they were a bit shocked because I think they just, in their minds that they were evaluating me. Yeah. But they didn't realize I was also evaluating them. It's a mutual relationship. It is a mutual evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. So I went back to university and I went, forget that. Mm. Now, if it hadn't been for that UTS job kind of tempting me in with the research assistant side, Mm -hmm. I may well never have found myself in IT and then getting the opportunity to find out that I actually really loved it. The fact that you've, you've taken on different roles and you're willing to try new things, that in itself is also a description of your character as well. I've long had this theory that there is only one thing that differentiates a technical person from a non-technical person, and that's the the willingness to have a go. Yes, be curious. Yeah, 
just try stuff out. Yeah. And there is absolutely no reason in the world why that would be a more male trait than a more female one. So You're right. You're right. Yeah, it's it's nothing to do with gender. It's definitely nothing to do with maths. It's just are you willing to have a go? Mm. And if you are, then you too can be a technical person. And that's the thing. Try doing the same job but in a different organization because what you think is a typical programmer can be different in a different company. I've always believed there's something for everyone. Yeah. You just have to find it. But once you find it, then it, it can open doors to the most interesting, stimulating and flexible work you could ever hope to find. I am surprised that there, there aren't more women in IT now having a taste of it because of how flexible it is so flexible it, it has to work and it has to achieve a, re- a particular result yeah and it's quite satisfying that you're able to do that in a flexible manner this is what the pandemic opened a lot of people's eyes to the notion of remote working mm. what they don't realize is in it we've been doing it for a very long time already we didn't just invent remote working when the COVID lockdown started. We've been doing it for years. That's why we had everything set up and we could get all you lot in. Switch it on and (laughs) boom, it works. How did that happen? (laughs) So, you know, in the early 2000s, so I was living in London because my husband was working as a diplomat for the British Foreign Office and we were posted to Brussels. So I, my son, when we moved to Brussels was three and I wanted to have another baby. So I planned to get pregnant while we were there, which I did. (laughs) But I was working for the London Business School before I I left. And actually I was already working part-time. I was working three days a week just so I could have a couple of days with, with my son. Yeah. And yeah, my boss said, no, let's, let's do a, a contract arrangement. You can work remotely. Now we'd done this big project where we moved the server room and we had to move it out of the, the lovely, historic, white domed, famous London business school building, which overlooks Regent's Park and is on all the brochures and the website. We had our server room in that prime real estate so so yeah the school management kicked us out yeah and we uh, had to we had to move to a part of the basement underneath the library (laughs) and it was it was such a reduced space you're back in that dingy dungeon again (laughs) yeah back in the dungeon yeah so it was part of it was such a smaller space that that our our sort of team leader said well we are going to have to upgrade most of the fleet of servers because there were all these odd shaped boxes many of them didn't they weren't rack mount mm-hmm. and this was long before virtual servers and cloud and all that sort of thing we had to have everything thank on the frame. lord we have those now. oh thank the lord we do now <laughs> definitely but the yeah so we we in in doing this this massive migration slash upgrade project to squeeze everything into this smaller space we also put in all this remote control kit so we could completely control the servers from our desks you were you were doing robots back then yeah now the thing is it all worked just as well from brussels wow so i was working remotely my london job from brussels i could build a server now there was i couldn't rack mount it i needed someone to rack mount it for me and i needed someone to put the initial setup a cd-rom into it and then i could take it from there and i could entirely build it from brussels in 2002 Great. And this is the thing I think that people don't realize that 
we've been doing this stuff in IT for a long time. We're 2023 now. We've been doing it for 20 yeah. years. Yeah. I had a toddler, I had a baby, and my career just very comfortably fit around that. Now, what brought you to your current company, A23? Why yeah. did you choose them and what do they offer for you, for your lifestyle? Yeah. So I, I got to a point a few years ago, pre-pandemic, when I was definitely getting burnt out. Mm. So I, I moved back to Australia in 2011. When I moved back to Australia, I was a recognized expert in identity management and particularly with the Microsoft product. You were an um, MVP, weren't you? I was, yeah. yeah. So I was awarded the MVP for nine years in the end. and uh, It's quite a prestigious award and to keep it for nine years. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> yeah. But I had got to the point where I was getting quite burnt out. And mm-hmm. so the company that I worked for, I... I got a job with them when I came back to Australia. They were the only company in Australia that fully specialized in identity management. I, I basically just had to let them know that I was thinking of moving back to Australia and a job offer followed yeah. very quickly. So that was thought, oh, that's pretty good. That's sorted. But it, it was just getting very hard. That is that whole commercial IT project delivery. Now, I love IT projects. I actually love projects more than what they now call BAU, business as usual work. I completely agree. Yeah, it's the whole thing of just the, the, the building the new things, the solving the problems. And then, and then yeah, write a good operations guide and hand it over to someone else to, yeah. <laughs> to run it. There's a start, a middle and an end, yeah. and then that's it. <laughs> exactly. So I love the project work, but what I was becoming very tired of was just the commercial kind of nonsense around it. And often people coming in who really have very little experience. So these project managers in, yeah, okay, maybe they've got experience doing IT projects, but they've never done an identity project before. And there are, let me tell you, very, very specific things and complexities in identity projects you don't get in others. And I've done a lot of IT projects in my time of different types. And then you've got this project manager telling you what to do when it's, well, how many identity projects have you delivered start to finish? Mm. None, but they still think that they can lecture you and tell you to cut corners. And I believe in quality. Quality is important to me. Yeah. I have to deliver. part of your values. It is. It's a big part. And people are going to be paying me to build something for them. I'm going to do the best job I can. Mm -hmm. And when my own employer, not necessarily the employer, but perhaps the project manager that they've employed, is haranguing me to cut corners i don't do the documentation unless they see that's where it all falls down is any job that i've ever had and and i've uh, interviewed for one of the big pitfalls is documentation if you don't have good enough documentation it all falls falls over yeah yeah and i'm I'm, i build custom machines entirely custom machines that Mm. are built and designed specifically for the environment it's they're going It's not out of the into. box stuff. It's not out of the box stuff. Yeah. You can't build someone a custom machine and then not give them the manual for it. Yeah. And uh, it still goes on everywhere. But it's, yeah, it's, it doesn't align with my values. And I was getting very, very tired of often I felt fighting with my own side. 
Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, doing the MVP activities, which for a long time I felt very driven to do. So as an MVP, you, you're awarded for your sort of voluntary activities that help the broader tech community. Yeah. So for my case, that was writing a blog, a technical blog. It was speaking at conferences. It was running a monthly online user group. And Carol still has that blog up on the web. So please check it out. Yeah, well... Yeah, it is still there. And people still refer to it. I'm still getting hits all the time because mm. I've got all these these detailed articles which say how to solve particular problems or troubleshoot and that sort of thing. So that it still gets hits. But back to A23, I, I think I was just getting to a point where I was feeling very burnt out. And so I, I declined a 10th nomination for the MVP and I handed in my notice to the company I was working for. And, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And then someone from A23 got in touch. Now I have met the founders of A23 on another project and actually worked quite closely with a number of them and just got on famously with them. And they're just the, they're just the exact sort of people I really like to work with. They, they do a good job at what they do. They also have a laugh. They believe in quality, but they also believe in giving people a go. If they make a mistake, it's not, there's no blame. I really hate that companies that have that real blame culture because the shame yeah yeah mistakes have to happen literally we are doing things all the time we've never done before all the time even if it on paper it looks something you've done before it never is Mm. there's always different stuff different versions all the time it's always different Mm -hmm. and how and back to that thing that a technical person is someone who's prepared to have a go Mm -hmm. that also involves making mistakes yeah so you've got to be a little bit cut comfortable with failure so if you then have someone shouting at you and blaming you and raking you over the coals for that that's not a good work environment whereas a23 they're nothing that they're the sort of people are to work with they believe in doing a good job but they believe in setting you up to succeed and now with me they sort of know that they've got this this sort of strange person who specializes in this very niche area and they're just very happy for me to do my own thing So I set my own schedule, I work the number of hours I want to, and I pick and choose my customers. And I I will not work with people anymore who have those sort of blame cultures. Yeah, you've got, Um, you've set your boundaries. And that's one of the biggest things for women in mm. particular is being able to have that confidence to validate yourself so that if you do make a mistake, it's just part of the process. Yeah. And you've been able to set boundaries. No, this is exactly how I would like to work. And if it doesn't suit you and I Mm. as a mutual relationship, then I'll find someone else. Yeah. And so I think A23 have been great because they they are very supportive of that. Yeah, you deliver quality and you are a unicorn. You can do a bit of everything and you're a true specialist. Now, I want to steer our discussion to remuneration in IT, particularly the gender pay gap. Now, according to the STEM Equity Monitor in Australia, the gender pay gap for women in science, technology, engineering and maths is around 20%, meaning that women in these fields often earn an average around 30 grand less than men do for the same type of job. As someone working in the IT field, what are your thoughts on the gender pay gap in STEM related fields in Australia? And do you think there are any factors that contribute to the gap? What do you think can be done to address the issue? Go ahead. Okay, so I have long thought that the biggest problem in the Australian workforce is pay secrecy. I hate it. Yes. And so you look at the public service, 
and the pay grades are well known. Mm. If someone's an EL1, everyone knows what their pay bracket is. It's just, it's common knowledge. You can look it up. It's publicly known. Mm -hmm. And then people might say, oh, but that's the public sector. When I was in Switzerland, so I spent four years in Switzerland, in Geneva, and I worked for an IT services company, a private sector company. They did the same thing. So they had, you were junior consultant, consultant, senior consultant, architect, senior architect. That was the way it went. And there, there were pay grades. And so, again, you knew where you stood in relation to everyone else. And it was, it was clear. And I've never understood this whole thing. Some companies even will make it a sackable offense to tell someone what you're being paid. Now, who does it benefit, this pay secrecy? It benefits the employers. And this whole individual bargaining thing where you... I've had experiences of finding out that someone who's come to the job a long time after me, we're doing roughly the same thing, is being paid massively more than me. Yep. Now, on one particular occasion where that happened, it was a woman. Mm. But she just she was just older than me. Far, she had a lot of less experience, in fact, but just far better at asking for what she was worth. Yeah. And I just happened to find out what she was being paid, so stormed into the boss's office and demanded that my pay be be matched was it matched it was Good. and at the time the boss was almost a bit shamefaced about it and he sort of said oh look i'm sorry it's just this is the way it works you have to pay the market rate to get the person in yeah and in australia there's this this thing that often the only way to get a pay increase is to leave and get another job or to be on the verge of leaving to get another job and then your current employer goes okay we'll match what you're being offered at this new job which then is really annoying to the other company who was expecting you to come on board. I honestly think if we got rid of this culture of secrecy around what people are being paid, because a lot of that secrecy also contributes to men being paid more than women because the women don't realise. How do you know if you're being paid what you're worth unless you also know what everyone else around you is being paid? Exactly. I, I agree. I think we should be open and transparent Mm. with all this stuff yeah i find it quite coming from public sector to private it's just bizarre yeah yeah so i would just make it all open i just find it so boring i just want to do the work yeah this is why the company i worked for in switzerland was so great in so many ways and and that they just had so much maturity in so many ways just really setting their employers up for success and making sure remuneration wasn't something that was that was going to be stressing us out. Yeah. So we all knew what the pay bracket was, and then we were we were well compensated for travel costs if we had to drive, use our own car to get to customers. In Switzerland, there's a very big lunch culture, and if you're on a customer site, everyone's going to lunch together. Yeah. And in in some customers, that's just down to their local lovely cafeteria where you can have a fabulous meal for ten dollars. But other customers. It would be to a restaurant. Yeah. And you'd be lucky if you got out of there for less than $35. So Land Expert just had this, right, any day you're on a customer site, you get $20 for lunch. Oh, wow. And, and it's just just included. You How know. good is that for the economy? Yeah. They're talking about people coming back to work. What an incentive. Yeah. <laughs> people come for free food. They and seriously do. Well, yeah, but it was great. It was such a great bonding experience as well with the customers to actually go and sit down and have lunch with them. And you really felt part of the team. And I'm trying to learn French as well. So that was, I probably yeah. learned a lot of French over those lunches. 
Thank you so much, Carol. So we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I typically like to ask my guests the same question, and that is thinking about your childhood, thinking about little Carol, what words of wisdom would you like to impart to her in setting her up for the rest of her career? I I mean, there's, there's one thing and one thing only, and that's that you're fine just the way you are. Perfect. I love that. That is just what us women need to know. Yeah. <laughs> is that we don't need to change. Yeah. We we need to validate ourselves that we are perfect the way we are. Yeah. And just keep going, keep trying. You're fine just the way you are. You might need to find find your own niche, find your own yeah. environment, find your people. Yeah. But you're fine just the way you are. So tell me about this memoir. I want our listeners to know what this is all about. It's a fascinating story and I'd like you to share who's it for and what do you want them to know? Okay, so I think, so firstly, it is a memoir about my life in IT. It does include some of my personal journey as well because I think that's relevant. I think some of the things that happened in my childhood have informed the way I am, the way I think, the way I behave and the way I've responded as well to certain things that have happened in my career. But I wanted to tell a positive story I wanted to tell a story about you can have a really good life in IT and and as a woman and as a mother it's been incredibly flexible it has definitely been a net good in my life for whatever times it might have been frustrating and yes I have wanted to pick up the computer and fling it out the window just as much as the next person but I think all jobs have their frustrations and I think that for me the good has far outweighed the bad and it's definitely it's allowed me to have a good income and set my own agenda and get to this point in my life where I can really pick and choose the work I do so I'm very grateful really for for my career and I wanted to I wanted to communicate that in a way that is my my very human story through technology but as well to put it in a context so this is something that question that annoying question why are there so few women in IT and that, that, that I've always kind of shrugged off and said don't ask me I finally got to a point where I thought, actually, maybe I do want to know. Maybe Mm -hmm. I do want to have better answers for that. And so that's when I started reading about that whole history of the aptitude testing that invented the nerd stereotype and the difficulties with girls who were younger than me who might have been interested in studying computer science that I didn't face and all these other factors that have, have conspired to keep women out of IT. And, and it's, there's a history there and I'm part of that history. You, and, you certainly and are. I'm, and I'm proud of that. So <laughs> It was definitely a net positive to have met you, Carol. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for contributing everything that you have to the IT and digital space and also to this podcast and sharing your journey with all of us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Women Count. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our special guest, Carol Wapshire, and her journey in the IT industry. 
we talked about the representation and opportunities for women in tech and how Carol's experiences reflect the larger systemic issues at play. Carol shared with us her personal journey and how she navigated her own challenges and setbacks to become the successful specialist and author she is today. We also talked about her upcoming memoir, IT Girl, and how it chronicles her experience in the IT industry. If you'd like to know more about Carol and her marvellous IT journey, please head over to itgirl.xyz. That's itgirl.xyz and support her with the publishing of her book. I want to extend a huge thank you to Carol for joining us and sharing her journey. It's important to hear these stories and recognize the barriers that women still face in the workplace. I hope this conversation inspires our listeners to continue to advocate for change and support women in all industries. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to Women Count and leave us a review. We'll be back again soon with another inspiring guest and important conversation. Thanks for tuning in.